You're listening to an Art Gallery of Ontario podcast. AGO Talks are recorded live in the gallery and feature artists, writers, and curators exploring how art shapes and inspires us. Please visit us online at ago.net slash talks. Good evening, everyone, and welcome. I'll let a couple of you take your seats. We're going to start. My name is Kathleen McLean. I coordinate public programs here at the Art Gallery of Ontario, and it's my pleasure to welcome you here on this very rainy evening. Um, tonight, our thanks go to AMIA, the signature sponsor of photography at the AGO. Um, and more specifically, tonight's talk is generously supported by Penny Rubinoff. Hello, Penny. Uh, who over the years has brought a number of really key figures in photography to the AGO, to Toronto, um, including Luke Sant, Fred Richards, Stephen Shore, Anthony Penrose. So a special thanks to her for allowing us to enrich our conversations on photography here. I'm happy to introduce Paul Graham. Tonight he joins us from New York. And for those of you who need a refresher on this practice. He, a series from the 1980s captured in monographs such as A1, The Great North Road, um, Beyond Caring, and Troubled Land were kind of instrumental in fostering a new school of British documentary photography that embraced color practice. His more recent body of work, um, one example would be Shimmer of Possibility from the 2000s, tends to bridge the perceived gap between still photography, cinematography, and conceptual art. Some of his recent exhibitions include A Shimmer of Possibility at MoMA in 2009, a mid-career survey, Paul Graham Photographs 81 to 2006, which originated at the Folkwang Museum in Essen and traveled. Graham is also the recipient of the 2012 Hasselblad Photography Award. His photos can be found in public and private collections worldwide, including the Art Gallery of Ontario, um, we're particularly pleased that the current installation of Light My Fire includes um, one of his works. So please join me in welcoming Paul Graham. Hi. Um, good evening. Thanks for coming out on a rainy night, as, as Kathleen said. Um, I thought nobody would bother on this round, but uh, <laughs> nice to see you do. Um, so I don't I don't talk that much about my work. So you know I, I did a few years ago, but I sort of stopped recently. This is actually the first and um, first talk I've given this year. So uh, excuse me if I'm a bit rusty and there's a lot of ums and ahs and pauses, but uh, we'll we'll get through it. I think. Uh, I think the plan, if I'm right, is to sort of talk for 50 minutes, 45, 50 minutes, and then open for questions if there are any for, you know, 10, 15, 20 minutes of questions, and that's all. So uh, we'll do that. Um, okay, so quick, I really want to show you pictures and talk, and talk about the issues and that they bring up and what was going on at the time when I made them. Um, but a little bit of background, I'm, I'm British, as you can probably hear. Oh, I, I live in, I've lived in America for 12 years now, in New York. And uh, um, I grew up in England, um, and uh, I'm, I'm, I'm self-taught in photography. I, I, I didn't study art. I, didn't, I went to a rather, um, a rather nondescript uh, 
school in a, in a new town, and I didn't even know our, co- our schools existed. That's how I was, I was like. Um, I, ended up, I did go to university and I studied science. I'm a trained microbiologist, for whatever that's worth, and, uh, which is a lot to our society. But uh, in terms of my photography, I don't know if that adds anything. Um, uh, but I was shocked when my, in my first uh, semester at school when I discovered that people could study art. They could actually go. The stuff I was having to do in the evenings and my free time and weekends, people were actually receiving government assistance and going to school with teachers and equipment so they could actually learn it. That was a, a God damn, why didn't anyone tell me this in you know, a moment of life? Um, so anyway, the good thing is, you know, you're forced back onto your, onto your own feet to, uh, to uh, struggle your own way through. And, uh, and, you know, for better or worse, here we are. Um, so I'm going to show you some pictures. All, all I had planned, because um, I'm actually, to my own shock, I've been photographing for 30 years now, um, or more than 30, like I say, working seriously for 30 years. So uh, uh, only the airplane mirror tells me that when I go and look in the mirror in the airplane and you, you suddenly realise how long you've been doing things for. Um, uh, so what I want to do is, uh, is briefly show you um, some projects from early work from, from Britain, the ones actually Kathleen mentioned there by chance. I, she, that's just coincidence. I didn't write that. The, the three early British projects, just briefly. I can't go through them all. I don't want to bombard you with too many images. Uh, and then three different bodies of work from the last decade. So that's all. So there's going to be a bit of a gap in the middle. So I'm sorry about that. If anyone wanted to see that or hear words about that, you can ask a question later. But I, I just didn't want to put, you know, 30 years of slide of slides of 30 years of images on the on the screen. I think that would be a bit much. Um, so is this is this on projector? Yeah. Okay. Uh, so I'm going to show you uh, a few pictures from this uh, series I did um, in England, uh, um, in Britain, I should say, rather than because it does cross over into Scotland. Um, it's it's basically. Uh, the project just is called A1, the Great North Road. It's a single road. It's like, like following Route 66 or something like that. A very classic um, trope in photography. Uh, and it's, uh, but it's really not about the road so much. I'm not interested in that strip, strip of tarmac in the ribbon or even in, in, in road photography. It really was an excuse to take a slice through the United Kingdom at that time and photograph everything from... from the genres of street photography, of landscape work, of still life, you know, of night photography, uh, candid work. Um, so it was kind of a, uh, a uh, an excuse to broaden, to spread my wings and broaden in that way what I was doing. And, and at the same time, to take a look across Britain in, this will be 81 and 82, so this is sort of, you know, early first, first year of Margaret Thatcher and her government. There. Um, which this actual reference image actually has quite a bit of reference to because uh, the Conservative Party in Britain, their colour is this blue, uh, of the blue of the woman's coat and the blue of the man's tie. Uh, the images are sequenced uh, simply by a journey north from the, the, the road, the A1, it's the original main route from north south in Britain, 
and it's not a motorway that dates way predates the motorway system or the the, the, the freeway system, as we might call it here. Um, it's, it's just a, a main a main highway, uh, and it goes from the centre of London, absolute financial centre, the Bank of England. It literally starts at the foot of the Bank of England, up through North London suburbs, through the shires, Cambridgeshire, Hertfordshire. Sound like Lord of the Rings now in a minute. But, uh, um, past, the, past the Hobbit's cottage, straight up, uh, goes into, into through the Midlands, the industrial Midlands, into the industrial northeast, Newcastle upon Tyne. It used to go right through the centre across Tyne Bridge, crosses the border into Scotland up there, Berwick upon Tweed, runs around the Scottish coast, and finishes in the, the main Princess Street in Edinburgh. Um, so I journeyed up and down that road many times. Uh, borrowed my girlfriend's Mini, the original Mini, not the trendy modern Mini, and uh, just drove up and down it quite a lot. And uh, in so this is a street picture by the Bank of England. Like I say, 1981. This guy's tight. Nothing is staged, by the way. I, I, I work from life as it happens. In, in, a, in a, uh, you know, people use the term documentary term, uh, documentary style. Let's leave it at that. We can discuss this later if you want to do that. Sorry, wrong way. Cafes, cafe interiors, they weren't, you know, this is pre-McDonald's era, of course, now. And uh, so these, these humble little roadside truck stop cafes, these are drivers, all of them, in their suits, uniforms, eating their bacon sandwiches and egg butties and cups of tea. Um, rainy, grey days, you've got to be true to Britain, you can't pretend it's, you know, you're on the highway in Arizona or anything like that. You're in England, so it's going to rain, and there's going to be a little cafe and a, a gas station. And at the same time, there is going to be the odd moment where the sun comes out sideways on fairly anonymous hedgerows and grass verges and illuminates the sort of the beauty of the ordinary in a way. Portraits, people. I was working with large format cameras mostly at this point, four by five. 8 by 10 uh, color, big slow cameras so if you, I'm, I'm going to have to assume that most of you are familiar with photographic terms here Thanks, but, uh, um, working the same way this is a project is fairly similar to I guess what Alex Soft did you know, 20 years later with his Sleeping by the Mississippi where he journeyed up and down the Mississippi you know, and, and photographed the people and the landscape same sort of thing same cameras as well Source bottles. Strange things you'd see. Just burning the stubble of the fields. It's hard to move fast with a large format camera, but you can. Strangely, even that street picture, the first one with the tie jumping over the man's hand, the blue tie, you know, trying to connect with the blue coat, that, that is actually a 4x5 picture as well. A lovely. They convert old old buses into cafes, and they park them in the in the uh, corners of the road. And you, you turn off and sit in this bus like a school bus, and you know the guy would make you the tea or a sandwich. Getting up near Newcastle, big grey skies, refineries, gas stations. I'm skipping a lot of pictures here. I'm saying, like I say, I can't show you the complete series. And ending up in Edinburgh in this in this uh, garage here, uh, which is uh, it's called the Great North Road Garage in in in, in, uh, in uh, Scotland in Edinburgh, Scotland. Um, 
And of course, these are car brands. These are car names that are de- demised. You know, they're gone. They're sort of even in they're just sort of legacy names at that point already. They've gone the way of a lot of industry in the UK at that point. Um, so in a way, it was a tour through Mrs. Thatcher's Britain at that point. Um, it wasn't overly political or angry, but it was it was within there, contained within there, a social critique of the country at that point. Um, what was unusual about it, which is almost invisible, and the same about this second piece of work I'm going to show you um, from the unemployment offices in Britain uh, in '84, um, almost you know, like 29 years ago now, uh, and at this point is invisible now to us. But what was unusual about it, and radical and controversial was it, was in colour, and people could not believe that. You didn't go up and down the road if you were a serious art photographer. You just shot in black and white. Color was trivial. Color, color was for, for you know, Sunday color magazine work. Color was for advertising and family snapshots. Yes, there were some colorists in art, you know, who did things like that. But it wasn't. It certainly wasn't documentary, to use the difficult D word again, or serious social issues or concerns. The concern probably did not use color at that point, and. The criticism seemed to revolve around that. Now it's such a non-issue; it's kind of invisible, and I'm having to point out to you even this, even this, this uh, painful birth, you know, this painful point. But it was it was very difficult at the time, uh, and and this is this was probably the most awkward piece of work in that in that point there, where I was I was photographing. I was unemployed myself at the the, the time there. Um, I graduated from university. I knew I didn't want to be a microbiologist, so. Um, I was just uh, able to, uh, I was just pursuing my work from the dull, as we called it. Uh, it's a little bit disingenuous there, because like many people at that time, yes, there was a recession in Britain in, the, in, in that time, um, but not as bad as the recent one, but there wasn't many jobs to be had right then. Uh, but having said that, a lot of young people at that time did use the unemployment system as a way of surviving. It gave you basic survival. It wasn't luxury by any means, but they sort of paid 90% of your rent and gave you enough money to live. And that's how so many musician friends of mine, how many people who did fashion, how so many creative people lived, painters, artists, musicians, lived from the, the unemployment benefit in, in a very normal way. It probably isn't so distant, it probably was very similar here, I'd imagine. At the same time, having said that, um, Mrs. Thatcher was trying to break the unions. Uh, she was trying to to, uh, to challenge the power of the unions in Britain and, and to by and large succeeded historically and using unemployment as a, as a method of, of economic repression uh, and the system was not set up to deal with the number of people that were coming in uh, of every type, younger, older, you know, single moms, uh, immigrant groups. It was, it was completely overburdened. So I was going to the offices that uh, around London at that point mostly, there, there are a few around the country, and, and just photographing discreetly within the, uh, within the waiting rooms, um, often overcrowded. This one was in London, in uh, Bloomsbury, that well-known um, literary centre, and uh, I think they decided to decorate it with pictures of uh, Dickens, um, is that Mr. McCorper, or Pickwick Papers, I can't remember how much one that is. Um, so, tales of Victorian poverty to enlighten and contemporary poverty. And he's, of course, looking at what was, became the famous um, 
Rupert Murdoch's son, you know, nude girls bringing sort of softcore pornography to the newspapers at that point. Good Australian cultural standards arriving in the UK. Um, so images like this were, you know, I mean, I would show them and I'd be slammed down by established magnum photographers because they'd say, but don't you find that the fact that the baby is wearing pink makes the picture happy and then it subverts your social power of the, you know, the quality of the image. And if I'd made this in black and white, how much better it would be. Um, so those sort of issues came up repeatedly. It got a bit tiresome, but um, anyway. It was um, released as an exhibition in, in 85, and I think I got the book out in the same time, 85. It might even be late 84. Uh, I put a lot of emphasis on, on publishing photo books. So, you know, I didn't, at the time I didn't have a gallery. The art galleries weren't interested in photography really much. Um, and, and more importantly, I learned from photography books. You know, I was sort of stuck in, a, in, a, in Bristol, a city in the southwest of England, and my only way of learning and appreciating photography was, was from books. Um, and, I, and I realized what a unique and powerful, you know, innately I realized without having a dialogue going on, this is an incredibly unique and powerful thing to photography. This, uh, this uh, space that we can create for ourselves in, 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 a, in a monographic book, which we can edit, sequence, and publish, and release in a small-scale way on our own terms. Of course it's expensive, and of course it's a struggle, but there were ways of doing it. And, and I by no means was the first. Many American people managed to scrape together money and a bit of interest and a little bit of support from here and there and, and release books of their work. And in a way, this became so much more important than exhibitions because a book would last forever, would travel internationally, would be shown from one person to another. Your exhibition went up, came down, ended up in the closet in your bedroom half the, for, for the rest of the years until you threw it out, usually. And, uh, but the book was going on. And people like myself, Martin Parr, John Davis, and Chris Kidd in Britain realized this. And, and we were able to somehow you know, make books happen in that way. Very claustrophobic picture. Um, to answer a question which always comes up, yes, I work in a candid manner. Again, I say not staged, straight, you know, taking images from life. Um, People did sort of know, I'm working with a medium format camera at this point, that's a big camera, it makes noise when it goes off. This is not some stealthy, hidden Thai camera or anything like that. Um, so, you know, and I don't just shoot one picture and run out the door, that's ridiculous. You know, I, I shoot a couple of rolls of film, so people get used to the fact. And, you know, I tend to shoot first and answer questions later. Because I'd love to, I'm not, you know, I do find it a little bit awkward to talk to strangers, as anyone does, but I'm not too embarrassed to acknowledge what I'm doing. But the problem is usually when you ask someone in advance, they sit up straight, they tighten their tie, they smile, and they look at you, and you don't want to take the picture anymore. So I tended to work in a candid manner, or even sometimes work through that awareness to the point where people are bored of you, and you can get the pictures you want. Um, old baby in a pushchair in uh, Brixton. Okay, so that, I appreciate now that probably seems a pretty hardcore project, and it, and it kind of was in a way of its time. Uh, that was as far as I wanted to go in that, in that sort of, you know, uh, 
in that direction, and I don't think I've got anything as, 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 as obviously documentary or whatever word you want to use for at that point. Um, again, the colour thing was a big issue there. Uh, and, you know, the, the documentary people would say, I'm an, I'm, I'm an arty artist who does nothing but it's sort of colour palettes. And the colour people would say, he's not interested in colour, it's documentary. So he was sort of getting a bit bombarded from both sides. And at the same time, you know, the work did have a life in social conferences. You know, it was actually shown in a few trade union conferences in the North, just in a cheap laminated form. I distributed it that way and was in some magazines that were very low brown, no one would ever hear, would have ever seen. And at the same time, it was also shown in one of MoMA's new photography series here. So it's very odd. It had this kind of like schizophrenic highbrow life as an interesting development of contemporary photography bringing colour into uh, something like that, and at the same time as it's very lowbrow life as agitative social engagement. Um, so, anyway, that's the way it worked out. At the same time as I was doing that work, literally that work was, like I said, 1984, 1985, almost 30 years ago now, um, I went out, to go, went out to Northern Ireland quite a bit. Um, people often make the mistake of assuming I'm Irish because they know it when they read I've worked in Northern Ireland I'm, I'm not I have no family connections there at all I just was rather concerned with what was happening a, you know basically a, a low level sectarian warfare happening in, in what was part of the United Kingdom rightly or wrongly it was part of the United Kingdom and remains uh, in, in Northern Ireland in Ulster as it's called um, and I decided to go out there and uh, work there uh, repeatedly over two years I didn't really know what I was doing. I didn't know enough. I wasn't informed. But somehow, naturally, that approach led me into an interesting way of working where I started out just looking at things from a distance, from an arm's length, because I wasn't familiar enough to be engaged, to be direct. So I would look at the landscape and began to be surprised at how the landscape itself began to be a sort of... um, uh, the, the. bore witness to the conflict that was happening there, the divide, and began to be marked, it was disputed, and obviously at the heart of the conflict is the land, is who has, whose land is this? Is it Irish land or is it UK land? So in a way it's very disputed, the land is, is the heart of the, the, the conflict there, who, who does this belong to? And people would be staking claims to it, and you'll see these, these you know, pretty scenes of the Irish countryside with uh, the, in, in County Tyrone, I believe this one is in the north, and someone's put the uh, the British flag, the Union Jack, at the top of the tree there to mark the allegiance of that area. Um, and here, the, the, obviously, I flipped between urban and uh, rural settings. And here in uh, in uh, Belfast, in, in Anderson's town, in uh, in. Uh, Belfast in a, in a pro-Republican area. Republicans, of course, pro the Republic of Ireland. Um, and this very fairly anonymous picture to anyone who's familiar with, with what you know, the British you know, uh, architecture and topography is. Uh, some few houses and a roundabout and some hills beyond. It looks almost like a nondescript picture, but then you start to realise that something isn't quite right with it. And uh, and you know, you realize that the lampposts have had their lights smashed off, and these um, stones are all gathered up on the on the uh, on the brick circle there for throwing at somebody. And this railing in the foreground is a bit out of focus. You see, it says IRA, the Irish Republican Army, and touts beware, touts are informers to the police. Um, and then one of the things you notice almost 
quite late in the series, is, is an armed soldier running across the roundabout in camouflage gear. He's actually holding his, his rifle. And off to the right are more soldiers, actually, in those railings on the right, where there's, there's one behind the blue cars and there's one walking away from us on the, on the other side, on the near side of the road, all in their camouflage gear. It's a British, a British um, patrol through the area. So what appeared to be, uh, and those are political posters high up, very high up, so no one can interfere with them. So what appeared to be a very mundane with, with the conflict of Northern Ireland, uh, you know, the more you look around. So in a way of subverting people's desire to engage with the landscape, especially the, the, the more pretty pictures, you know, like this, despite it having a, it's not a blue sky, it's this beautiful, you know, the mists of, the misty skies of, of Ulster, as they called the great mists of Ulster, looking over a, uh, over a field down to a village with two churches and the river. The, um, the Irish Republic is to the left of that river there, on the, on the left side, so that's the border. And this is a very pro-Republican area in Strabane, uh in the countryside. And uh, what looks like a sort of rather average landscape picture to do with misty light and northern weather, Right in the centre of that picture, quite small to see, there's a close-up of it there, is uh, a parade of young Republicans, sort of like the IRA Boy Scouts, parading to the flag, that's the Irish flag, the Irish tricolour on the flag post, um, on that, that white thing there. Um, so they're sort of like the, you know, the, um, in the United Kingdom, they're actually parading the opposite way, you know, as is their right. So what, again, what looked like a, a rather bland or, you know, attractive, seductive uh, um, landscape picture is, in fact, a war photograph, in a way, a conflict photograph. Uh, and so this exact boundary between conflict photography and landscape photography became very interesting to me. At what point does the... the uh, what point do, do the two clash and, and meld together and, and what comes out of it? Um, it, it's become a bit of a genre recently, but at the time I was doing it 30 years ago, it was, it was, it was relatively new territory, and, and certainly working colour, which is very important, you know, because colour is political allegiances. This, this is a road looking down onto Derry, or London Derry, according to your preference of calling it. Um, Someone had thrown red paint and white paint and blue paint to mark the colours of the British flag in this case. Other places you would go and you find the colours of the Irish flag uh, green, white, and gold or yellow sometimes, uh, orangey, yellow, you know, thrown down the road. Um, so a sort of, you know, political sort of Jackson Pollock statement, you know, splashed all the way down the road into the town um, as you go in. So obviously photographing some black and white is kind of pointless, you know. Um, here's a stop and search in a, a seaside town called Warren Point, which is notorious for a bomb attack on the, a very clever bomb attack sort of, uh, on British soldiers where they uh, it happened before this, it was notorious where they put a bomb in a culvert and blew up a, a, a patrol that was going past and the surviving soldiers all did a all did a, uh, as they've been trained to to regroup in a nearby farm building farmhouse building, the nearest safe building safe structure there where they could be and of course they planted a second bomb in the safe structure and when they regrouped they blew up the second one and wiped out the whole lot. So it was a pretty much, it was like 17 soldiers, or I'm probably getting it wrong, probably like 12, but uh, it was a very uh, evilly, Machiavellian, clever uh, bomb there. Um, so whilst this very 
classic seaside town where they've stopped a car and they're just checking the identity of the driver and maybe they'll look in the trunk, I don't know. Um, was in fact has this uh, very uh, difficult, painful history. And I believe this one's in the collection here, is that right? Yeah, uh, that's nice to know. Um, uh, last two of this series, here's, um, here's, uh, here's one of the notorious politicians, Ian Paisley. His political poster faded in the hedgerow there. These are the unionist politicians. Um, and here's a, uh, another uh, looking at some fields beside the road. And what appears to be a big smudge of dust in the sky is actually an army helicopter that's just serviced that observation post, which is the, the, the structure. You probably can't quite work it out, but the odd-looking structure, towery thing, grey towery thing sticking up between the hedgerows there, where the British Army would be, be there with their soldiers overnight with um, binoculars and rifles trained on the border. And I think that's the last picture I have here of um, some curbs at dusk, painted the colours of, in this case, the British... British flag, they could easily, in the next village, they could be the opposite colours. So that, that series was called Troubled Land, 1984-85, and I think there's a few pictures from 86. Um, came out then. Um, so at that point, those are three bodies of work I, uh, I completed in England in the 80s. Um, in the first half of the 80s, I would say, up to 86 would be the last picture. Um, and, uh, and actually, I really haven't worked in Britain again since then in any meaningful way. Is that true? There's the odd picture taken there, but there's no, you know, series long connection between, the, you know, work in England at that point. Um, so now I'm going to skip forward by 15 years to, I think, the earliest pictures in these are sort of like 99, maybe, maybe ones from 98. So you move from... 85 to 98, so yeah, 15 years, 14, 15 years. Um, uh, and I moved to America, or I began going there a lot at first and then eventually moved. And uh, I want to show you um, three series of work from America. I'm actually keeping an eye on the time. Will you signal me if, uh, if we get uh, anything too far? Um, so I went to the United States and um, began working there. Uh, and of course you always have that uh, difficulty as an outsider coming into a different country of you know, what point should you how much you're critically allowed to be I mean this is an old issue you know I mean if you just keep to photography Robert Frank of course had it when his great wonderful body of work the Americans you know the immediate critique was how dare this Swiss gentleman come in and how un American of him and criticize our country, he doesn't understand it, etc. But be that as it may, I traveled around. Uh, I sort of just chose compass points in this case. I sort of went north, south, east, and west. So I went to Detroit. And actually, that was the first time I came to Toronto 12 years ago. And just to make the journey down to Detroit, I had a friend here as a base, and then went down to Detroit. Just as you all know, here it's not so far. Um, Detroit, Atlanta in the south, Los Angeles in the west, and, and New York in the east. Um, to me, the elephant in the room in America was this, the, the, you know, the social fracture of America into rich and poor, have and have not, um, the dispossessed versus the possessed. 
and you know nobody's prepared to discuss that, and it just seemed to be overlooked. You know, you drive drive past people who were not homeless necessarily, not destitute. They were just on hard times, trying to get home along the verge of the road, walking home, and how that became invisible to us. We edited out of our consciousness from our mind. And I'm not particularly picking on Americans in this sense. It's just a universal truism. Um, so I wanted to make something about that invisibility. Uh, and what I alighted upon, partly for reasons I can explain, it's kind of, you know, you never know if you're justifying afterwards what, how it came about or not, but uh, was, as you see, was to overexpose the images, to, to render things in, in almost invisible whiteness, um, a blinding whiteness that you can't see. Um, and uh, partly I think that came out I remember walking out of the cinema one afternoon um, see how hard working I am I was watching a movie in the afternoon uh, and you know those moments where you come out, I think I was in Memphis and you come out the side door you think oh it says exit and you push this door and suddenly you're in the middle of a car park in blazing sunshine and you can't see and your eyes burn out you have this kind of like oh whoa and you squint and you shut your eyes down and you sort of tie it open it's like, you know, it's like the spotlight is on everything. It's blinding, you know, white-out tundra, you know, uh, uh, optical blindness at that point. And I began to notice and see somebody across the car park, some, some unfortunate man collecting cans around the car park or something like that. And I thought how interesting that was, that point of near invisibility. Um, so I started to... And all, all, the only trick, if you can call it that, and this is simply overexposure. You know, just deliberately adding two stops to the exposure, just making sure that they're very bright to pictures, very high key, and maintaining that in the printing. You know, not letting. So of course, if you send an overexposed negative, because this is the time of film, not digital, uh, send an overexposed negative to a laboratory, they would correct it for you. They'll, they'll try and you know print it down, but making sure that doesn't happen. I, I print my own work, so I just get the negatives developed and maintain that brightness. So you see people like this, this guy, he's very smart, he's got smart black pants on there, black slacks, and a white shirt, well-pressed white shirt, just going home from his job along the road. This, as nearly everyone knows, America's very poor for public transport, so the guy was having to walk a couple of miles every day, backwards and forwards. That would be in Atlanta, in the south. Memphis, this, could, this would be the same trip as I had that blinding moment. And then snapping back and bringing back to regular color, to bring it back to, to, to full, you know, full normal color, but just photographing these, these McMansions, these dream homes, uh, jumbo homes in the, in the suburbs of California mostly, um, you know, perfectly laid out with the little green lawn and the plants and the, the little shutters and, you know, dis Disney-fied sort of houses and... Uh, the perfect car on the driveway, the two-car garage. No people in these pictures at all, just this unattainable sort of artist's impression of a happy, wealthy, successful, middle-class life that is unobtainable to many other people. And back to the whiteout in that way. Los Angeles, man walking through the car park. You often find people have these gestures of anger and frustration, either the body language is a little slumped, or their hands are out, or they're touching their head. Um, there, is, there is a sort of um, uh, catalogue of uh, 
And this woman has her arms out beside her in exasperation, waiting for the bus. Um, that's in New Orleans, I believe. Um, so you're using editing to snap in and out of these states of consciousness, in a way, of awareness. Back to the whiteness. Man waiting for a bus. Man walking through a field in Atlanta with his milk, I believe it was, it might have been water or beer, I don't know. Man in Memphis walking towards me, downtown Memphis. And then the only third part of this series, out of the three sort of styles of work or bodies, of three sort of um, techniques really within thing, was these inner city pictures um, made in uh, made all in uh, the boroughs of New York. They're nearly all actually in, in Bed Stuy in New York, and I think one or two might be in Manhattan. Um, and I was lucky enough to get a picture of this blinded man with a white patch over his eye, the white gauze, which of course look through a white gauze, you would kind of see something similar to the pictures I've just shown you, the white out pictures. Smoking a cigarette, walking through Bed-Stuy. Uh, again, nothing posed, everything is candid from the street. A woman sitting on the sidewalk, sitting literally in the, in the, in the gutter, in the curb. Looking back at me, I had pictures before when she looked away, I had pictures after of her, just looking in her direction, and I kind of liked the one when she looked at me. Because it gave, it, some way she's challenging me. It re-empowers her because she's able to gaze to me and that means gaze to you. So it gives her some, some sense of, you know, self-awareness and, and, and rights. So I chose that one, which is a little bit of a challenge. Uh, but it, uh, I, I'm, I'm pleased I did. I think it's the right thing. And I love these bizarre... To flip it to the other way, I love these bizarre intersecting triangles of light and shade that work very well. Uh, it's, it's a nice empowered picture in a strange way, even in that position. And, and I like that she stares, stares down me, the photographer, which means she's staring down you, the viewer, as well. And good for her. And it's a man. He's not actually trying to... Some people misunderstand and think he's trying to stop me. I'm trying to stop me taking his picture. He actually was wiping sweat from his forehead. It was a very hot day, as you can probably see from the light in the heat. You know, and I'm, of course, I'm not stupid. I'm aware that I'm photographing poor people on the street and what a cliché that is. But it, it becomes such a cliché and such a difficult, sensitive, awkward thing to do that people have stopped doing it. They literally stopped doing it. It was taboo. No one could do it. You were seen as dumb and idiotic. And so literally nobody would photograph this. Uh, and I just thought, that's just preposterous in, in, in the time of Bush's America. This is absolutely ridiculous to just ignore this and act like it is not happening. And the license of being an outsider, I just thought, I'm going to do it. Carried on working, and uh, then I found a woman with a white MRI, which is wonderful on her stick out of the, coming out of treatment, uh, not coming out of treatment, she must have had treatment recently. Uh, and those two match up in the book sequence there, the first and last pictures of that tight dark sequence there, that little, there's only like eight pictures of this dark street, uh, very low-key pictures, and then we go back to the whiteness again. Um, I lay out my own books in case that isn't very obvious to you, I sequence them and lay them out. I'm quite fortunate I have uh, publishers who will 
usually agree with that with a few tweaks. Uh, man at the wheelchair waiting to cross the road. Man shaking out his blanket on the store. Detroit, as long as Detroit, you probably recognize those, you know, roads. There probably were some very nice houses there that have gone to dust. His and hers matching Mercedes. Man walking away down the bridge in Atlanta. And the last one, there was a little group of people looking over their shoulder at me, and I like that. I like to sort of look back, as I said earlier. I put those in. That's, I think that's the last picture in the book, yeah. So that series came out. Um, I did actually want to call it Elephant uh, at the time, but um, goddamn Gus Van Sant beat me to it with the title of his movie, so, uh, which came out <laughs> the same three months before the book was printed. So we switched the tale to American Night, which is not as good, but uh, it's from Le Nuit Americaine, the Truffaut movie, um, Day for Night, as it's known in the English title. Um, it's a filmic technique when you have, want to shoot a, a, a night shot. You shoot it in daytime, of course, but you put heavy filters to make it into a, a like a night shot. Of course, this is kind of doing the opposite. It's making a day shot into a super day shot. Um, one thing I just wanted to mention about this was strange was uh, people had, in the photography community, had difficulty with this because they'd say, one strange thing was they'd say, but you've manipulated it. You know, you've, you've, you've made it very bright, you've, you've manipulated it so heavily. And I guess that's true in the sense of overexposure. But you sort of, somehow, you realize that by pushing, you, by behaving one way, you unpack some of the hidden rules of photography, which is, those people wouldn't, don't think it's manipulated. If they take a picture that's normally exposed and push it down into shadows, print it darker, that's considered absolutely normal and acceptable and just a good print. It's not even considered manipulated. Push it, make it two stops, two notches darker. Everyone thinks lovely, dark, moody, shadow-filled picture, which is what, you know, pictures of poorer people or sad situations are supposed to be. Take that same negative, push it two stops lighter in the other direction. Everyone starts wailing, saying, you've manipulated this. So it's very strange how moving one way is acceptable and well-known practice to the point of invisibility moving the zagging instead of zigging is somehow unacceptable. But uh, it, became very, it became quite interesting at that point. Uh, so that book came out. Uh, a couple of people sent the books back because they thought they got a misprinted book. And I was kind of like, you know, and quite a few, uh, a few printers kept telling me I had sent them the wrong file because there was nothing on it. But, uh, all right. So I'm moving forward now a few years. I, I stayed in America. I was, I was very lucky. You know, I'd moved there. I just had two suitcases. I lived in a rented flat. I could move in the back of a taxi cab. And I realized, you know, this is a point in my life where I was free. I could travel. I could explore a bit of the United States. I didn't want to do a, a you know, I didn't want to imitate the great Robert Frank or any of his road trips or, you know, repeat that. But at least I could get to see the country a bit. So, you know, I'd go off in that and rent a car and just, uh, you know, rent a car for three weeks and return it was 6,000 miles on the clock, you know, later. And, uh, got to see a lot of the United States, very poorly, often slept in the back of the car, cheapest motels I could find, didn't get any bed bugs luckily, but, um, and made this piece of work which became eventually called A Shimmer of Possibility, um, with these 
This is the exhibition in MoMA, which sounds very grand. It was in a fairly smaller space at MoMA. It wasn't some great six-floor survey exhibition. Uh, it was in the, a modest photographic space there, but uh, a very lovely exhibition nonetheless. Um, and what I was sort of started doing was um, photographing repeatedly people I met. Some I talked to them, some I didn't. This, this woman I did have a long conversation with. Um, and just doing repeated series of photographs between them, and then realizing there were these stuttering moments of life, these flickering, repeated moments where you, 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 you're drawn into an awareness of who this person is and what their situation is. So looking at the woman there with her, her, her dyed orange hair, she's sitting at a bus stop, she's waiting for a bus and, and eating some food while she waits there, some takeout food. This is in uh, New Orleans. This is all pre-Katrina, of course. Uh, very, uh, is that the hurricane? Katrina was the New Orleans hurricane. I think. Getting confused with the recent one. Um, look down at her hands. She's eating that meal. Couldn't work out exactly what it was. Take another picture a little closer. Just say, can you just move your fingers a bit? She moves her fingers. Look again at it. She carried eating. She was throwing the bones into the curbside right in front of me. And that was a soda can. So I took one picture. You can't, probably can't tell at this point, but one picture is focused. The left picture is focused on the soda can. And then just pulled the focus, the awareness through to the bones in the second picture. Back to her smoking her cigarette. You know, great pleasure having a cigarette. She's eaten a great meal, the meal she wanted. She's smoking a cigarette, and she's gone. So you have these small moments. That would be how we lay down the wall. Small sequence of six pictures. These flickering moments of awareness, of coming to of a realization, a realization of consciousness of what, what, where we are, and what we are seeing. Um, I'll do another, I'll, carry, I'll come back to that in a second, I'll just show you another series so you get the idea of it. Here's, uh, here's um, another work where I actually interlocked, it's actually two series of works, I interlocked them in a, in a book form and often on the wall. There's two sequences, one is this man here on the, uh, on this, on, beyond, usually on the right panel of, of the screen, selling these flowers, roses and irises in the streets in San Francisco. Uh, and on the left panel is a man waiting for a bus. He's just standing in the uh, in the shade there in Las Vegas, in downtown Vegas, rather than rather than the, the strip. And uh, he's just smoking a cigarette while he waits for a bus in the shade. And there's the, uh, the man. That's a little dark on your screen. It's not so dark on mine. And just he looks up, that moment of just awareness. So you have that little flicker between down and up, the time of animation as you turn the page. And, and deliberately not choosing, not saying, okay, which one is the better picture? I'm only going to use that. It's about this, you know, this, this stuttering flame of life. I bring that in. The guy with the cigarette has moved off to the side to lean against the wall a bit. You look to the left of him and there's a pile of discarded laundry. No idea what or why. What that's doing there, just like the bones in the road in the last sequence I showed you. The man with the flowers showed me his flowers. The camera didn't focus right in the first picture, it missed the focus. This is an autofocus camera. The second picture, it got it right. I decided to include both. Just leave the out of focus one in and the in focus one in. 
the guy who takes a drag on his cigarette. The guy with the flowers shows me he probably can't make it out in the dimness of the screen, but uh, he's got a scratch across his wrist, a scar across his wrist. You're not sure if it's just from the roses or means something more. You never will know. I suspect just the roses, but I have no idea. And the guy with the cigarette is just standing there, still waiting for the bus. He takes a breath. That's it. It's a very simple two sequences, very anonymous moments. That's how they're shown on the wall. One is high, one is low. They sort of overlap a bit. The frames jump in size. Even the two pictures of the man's face change scale. Nothing the same. On the, on the books I lay out, I don't use any grids. No picture is in the same place. I just roughly place it without any grids or guides. So it's vaguely there. It sort of moves around like life itself. We don't. Life doesn't come at us in any grids. People aren't in the right places. People move. Our perspective of them moves. Our awareness of them shifts. Um, and through this type of work, here's another uh, sequence, um, very simple sequence, um, in uh, Austin, in Texas. Just, uh, I, was, I was actually on my way back after a useless trip where I failed, and then just parked up to a burger, and uh, this couple passed me with uh, the guy who was carrying his giant packs of Pepsi on his, on his shoulder. As I was walking back, I think I'd, fin- I'd eaten, and I was going back towards my car, and I just took some pictures of him and his partner carrying the... Uh, my, my, his partner, I don't know, his, his friend carrying the shopping, and they were heading back. We passed this couple at a bus stop, waiting, making gestures, just waiting patiently for the bus to come. Carried on walking. You see the um, you see the Pepsi's, then you realise you're passing a graveyard. You change the focus to the graves, the attention, the awareness. Back up the road, we passed a garden. A little boy was playing, a little African American boy playing with absolute delight with this uh, plastic bag, just running and letting it catch with the catch the fill up with air and pull out of his hand. He was losing it like a like a sort of lame kite. The absolute glee from it, it was so charming, so beautiful. And his sister there playing with toys. Back to the people walking. These moments of glancing, glancing awareness of something coming and going. And then they walked off into the distance. Our, our paths diverged at that point, and I just let them go. Um, I didn't want to stall them. So I guess at this point, you know, I came aware that's how it would be on a wall. They might move up and down a bit more than that. That was one layer. Um, I guess I became aware that at the point that so much photography is a sort of um, single image photography, there's, there's a sort of spotlight consciousness it, it proposes to us that, that everything, like, like you're seeing me here, actually these lights are still up a bit, is that right? Is that, yeah, right? You're seeing this sort of spotlight consciousness you know, where you look at one thing and that is the moment, this thing, this, this illuminated single moment. And I think in Shimmer of Possibility, a Shimmer of Possibility, it was more a move to a sort of like a floodlight consciousness here, to turning on the lights and looking around you at everything, looking at the bones in the road, looking at the hand, the greasy hands, looking at the woman's hair, you know, looking at the Pepsi people, looking at the people waiting at the bus stop beside them as they walk, back to the walkers, to look at the child in the garden, look at the walkers again, see them go off into their house. 
that sort of flood-like consciousness, that sort of awareness, that broader, more gentle awareness of, 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 of life flowing around and through and past, was kind of what was at the core of this work. Hence that title, you know, a shimmer of possibility, the shimmer of consciousness, of awareness, of, of, of other people, of life. I don't want to explain the title because at the end of the day it's a nonsense, poetic title. Um, um, but it's, it connects with that idea. And here's the last one I'll show you from this sequence. Um, this was in Texas as well, at the end of the day. Uh, she's looking into a sunset, and you probably can't make it out. Yeah, no, this is a little dark, this one here. Um, right in the heart of that sunset is a just see some two children playing, two teenagers. No different picture of the sunset. You know, I just stood there, two or three pictures of the sunset before I recognized that the kids were playing in it. The sunsets, I walk around through the garden, and there they are, in the twilight, throwing hoops, just jumping up and down. Sorry for the size of this or the brightness. It could be a little sharper, but it doesn't seem to want to be. Um, just throwing these hoops. Brother and sister, I think they were, playing outside in the twilight, of this small town, Texas, not nondescript place. The girl has a go, sets up, throws. We look at her, wait and see results. We have no idea. Did the ball go in the hoop? Didn't the ball go in the hoop? Not. It doesn't matter. It's about the woman. So this anonymous moment of life, like everything you've seen. I mean, there's nothing spectacular going on here. There's, there's, there's people carrying their shopping home. There's some kids playing in the backyard. There's a man waiting for a bus. There's a woman eating some takeout. You know, nothing is of any consequence in the most obvious sense or photographically worthy or newsworthy. So in that sense, it's kind of anti-photographic in the obvious sense. You know, anti-newsworthy anti photojournalism, there's nothing to report. But that is its value, in a way, to do that. That would be how Rose would be shown. Okay, so you saw in the beginning of that um, how it was in, installed in the exhibition, pictures roaming up and down the wall. In book form, what I did was, was to release it uh, as 12 volumes, 12 small thin volumes of work, like the, the, um, the couple walking home with their Pepsi on the shoulder would be just in, in one book. You know, the, the people, the, the, the brother and sister shooting hoops at the end of the day in another book of its own. So giving each little, so apparently trivial moment of life, its own dignity and importance, not, not, not allowing it to slip away unnoticed. Um, so these 12 short stories, if you want to say that, or 12 vignettes, um, uh, some, someone coined the phrase, which somehow everyone describes to me, but it wasn't me, filmic haikus, which is a very nice phrase for them. Um, Altogether, you didn't buy, you, didn't, you bought you 12 books in a box, you didn't buy them separately, they weren't available on their own, on individually, you bought a little box of these 12 books. They weren't numbered, they weren't sequenced, it wasn't like, this is the first and most important, and this one is last, they just were random stories with no numbers on them, and all that changed was the colour of the linen, binding on the linen. Uh, no words, no text at all, copyright symbol at the back, and that was it, publisher's name. Um, very simple. Uh, very nice sequence of books. I was very lucky to have that done. Um, unfortunately, the, the bloody book dealers moved in on it right away. We only printed a thousand, a thousand times twelve, of course. It was quite expensive for a thousand copies, and 
it uh, got snapped up by the photo book investors. So, so. Yeah. Anyway, that's what that, that's what happens. Can't stop that. Um, and then, last piece of work I'm going to show you here. How are we doing on time? Good. You are. Uh, last piece of work I'm going to show you here uh, quickly is is some work from the street in New York, uh, where I live. Uh, done. Uh, it was shown last year, so uh, it was done. Anyway, in the last three four years, and. Um, I came up with the title of the present, which of course you all speak English here, or a variety of it, so uh, you get the double meaning in that, but the present as in the immediate moment, and the present as in the gift, um, the cadeau. And in the sequence, I always took two pictures, the flowing life of the street, so you would see, um, well, you'd see a picture of these moments of the street, um, Man here walking with an eye patch, obviously in a lovely mirror image of the remember the American night of the poor woman working with the white eye patch. You've got a, a Wall Street guy walking with his black eye patch here, and then a few seconds later, a guy's walking down the street with a very heavy wink in his eye, very heavy closed eye. Uh, so these connections, of course, street photography is a well-known trope. You know, great photographic challenge. It's it's kind of one of the one of the uh, Cliches of uh, cliche genres of photography, you know. Of course, Gary Winogrand, a great master of all this. Lee Friedlander, to much to a great degree too. Uh, Robert Frank, I wouldn't call him a street photographer, but he certainly made some great works on the street in that way. And I wanted to do something like that, but at the same time in a different way. Um, here's up in New Orleans. I'm using digital at this point, medium format digital, very shallow focus, and just a lighting on one thing or another. This guy was walking home, listened to a CD player, flipped to a second later, and it's a girl. There's a clash of eyes looking through the middle here. There's an eye looking at you, an eye looking left, an eye looking right. The woman was handing out religious leaflets in the foreground. It's on 125th Street, I think, or Lexington. Like two office ladies, lunchtime, down in Tribeca, Wall Street, crossing the road by the taxi. Kind of a bit of timelessness about this one. It sort of could be sort of madman era even. I like that it says New York and company above that. A few seconds later, a man in his gym clothes on a cell phone. So you get this choreography of characters moving and shifting very slightly and focus, it's very shallow focus, like I said before, just hinting the women who were sharply in your awareness have gone into our focus and the man has come into your focus um, point. Man sits in midtown, lunchtime, reading his financial paper in the Rockefeller Center. A few seconds later, young girl, young woman, comes out on a cell phone immediately, just adjusting her hair. She walks past. And actually, the weird thing is, you realize, I used to focus a lot here, you realize that there is, um, we actually see in shallow focus. You start concentrating your eyes on something's a bit hard in here because it's blacked out, but we see in a very, we don't see in deep focus. We see when you're looking at me, you're seeing me sharp, but the wall behind me is, is a blur. Concentrate on the, on the wall behind me, I become a blur. We actually see in a, a shifting focus as we look. It's like a spot, it's even more of a spot focus in that manner. And it's funny, but because anything we look at, our brain automatically adjusts our, our vision for it. It comes in focus almost instantly, but actually what we are seeing in any instant is fairly shallow focus. 
And so I was trying to use that in this work very much with uh, you know, moving, shifting moments of, of focus and awareness, in a way. A woman walks past a, a uh, fast food, you know, southern chicken shop with orange hair and orange glasses. A few seconds later, a woman walks past, a younger woman walks past drinking an orange drink. So, you know, these humorous, coincidental moments, like B. Friedman, I often did things like that, Gary Winogrand too, but updating them in color, sequencing them, showing you the belly, you know, a second or two seconds have passed between them. And of course, that makes a mockery of the word the present because there's multiple presents moving on. Here's a very simple one. I, I put two triptychs in there as well, two, two trilogies images because I couldn't decide. This man's waiting midtown, waiting across the road with a cigarette. The taxi crosses. The focus actually shifts to the woman in green behind. The taxi goes. He exhales. So those three sequences, three images, have just happened in one breath, one in out of the cigarette. A pause. Last couple of images now. Um, a upright young African-American man crosses the road in Midtown. You can see it's 53rd Street from the sign there. Good suit, smart suit, smart tie. A few seconds later, poor African-American man, down his luck, a bit beaten by life, a bit older, crosses the same crossroads. Pause. Last one I'm going to show you, I think. Woman in Tribeca, walking down the street. A few seconds later, she stumbles to the ground, passes by, go to help her. It's a bit of an anomaly, this one, because there is a bit of drama in it. It's hardly newsworthy. Woman falls over, you know, but uh, stop the presses. But uh, it was it happened right there, and why not? People keep thinking I've arranged this because the lighting is so, you know, the men are all, you know, cast. It just was early morning, and uh, everyone was going to work. And actually, in the first picture, you, you won't be able to see this. You can see exactly why she tripped up. There's a little band thing on the sidewalk that caught her feet. Um, uh, sorry, I do have one more little sequence here with. Uh, outside the Port Authority where this guy, homeless guy, is walking with his bags doing something. The guy in the background, the background of the last picture, the orange, the uh, guy wearing the yellow there, comes into awareness, carrying his lunch bag. The first actor leaves the stage. The, the man with the big bag is leaving, departing the stage left. The man, come, the man in the yellow sweater comes for a stage forward. And then the woman with the dog who is hidden behind there in that picture, you see the dog just coming in, she comes to stage center. So there's beautiful flowing moments of life. Um, someone pointed out that all three have bags. There's the homeless guy with the big bag, there's the guy carrying his lunch, there's the woman with her pack bag there going to work. She actually came, I got to know this woman, she, she identified herself and said, hello, it was fine, totally fine with the picture. Of course, I gave her a copy. That was fine. All right. Um, so that work came out just last year, like I said, and, and there's a book too. Uh, yeah, it's the same thing. Uh, you can see in the installation pictures, they were hung very low, very close to the floor in the gallery, just sort of like, you know, 10 centimeters or six inches above them, and uh, installed very much like you can see there, diptychs and triptychs. Some of them were smaller and hung vertically or horizontally. Uh, I was very lucky. I, I was, um, the, the gallery I was engaged with had a, had a big space then, and. Uh, they, uh, I was lucky enough to get a good, good showing of them and uh, maybe see how they're used. 
the gallery, you know, the floor of the gallery obviously became connected with the sidewalk a bit, and that was the idea behind those. And it was a, it was a very nice installation. I was very happy with that. And some of those that ones with the, the mad Nenish woman crossing the uh, by the yellow taxi. Okay, so those are three three bodies of work from from the United States, which I sort of stopped at that point. I'm not, you know, going to work in that way anymore. Um, one thing that's kind of interesting about those three bodies of work, which I should sort of draw to your attention, is uh, um, it wasn't a master plan at the beginning, but I realized halfway through that the first one, the very white pictures, American Night, that deals with intense light, intense exposure, uh, and which is in the way you control light in the camera is through the aperture, the iris, that big, that eye thing that closes or opens, um, which is one of the principal tools of any camera. There's only, there's, only, there's only three tools on the camera really to control how the picture is. So the first one is the little iris. The second one is the shutter that, that stops time, you know, 125th of a second, 1,000th of a second, half a second. And so that's slicing into time, stuttering, cutting into the flow of time. And Shimmer Possibility does that. It's these stuttering moments of time. So that is the second tool of the camera. And the third and only other control you have on one of the most basic cameras is focus, is where you're focusing, looking at this or paying attention to that further on, closer or further. So in a way we have in those three, across the three projects, the American Night white pictures, the shimmer possibility stuttering pictures, and the present with its, its focusing awareness, shifting consciousness, we have the three controls of the camera, uh, aperture, shutter, and focus reflected with and dealt with and played with and, and, and manipulated in an in a, in a artistic way, I hope, um, to create the work. And in itself, that's kind of interesting, but sort of, so what? You know, so what aperture, shutter, focus? But it becomes more interesting when you think of aperture in terms of light, shutter in terms of time, and focus in terms of consciousness. So in other words, playing with notions of, of light and time and consciousness becomes much more interesting and uh, more worthwhile of uh, the work, I hope, you think, anyway. All right, I think we'll leave it at that point. And thank you for your time. We'll do some questions. States, you know, you do that. I, I hope nobody's offended. I haven't really had anyone ever come back in that way, but of course, it's possible. And yeah, at the end of the day, it's possible. I mean, in, in America, in the United States, you know, there's a great that, that you, you're, you're able to do it. It has people have tried to challenge it, and it's always failed. And, and in a way, as tough as this sounds, I'm glad that is the law because we would never have any Walker Evans pictures or Versailles pictures or. Robert Frank pictures or Lou Ferrer pictures, what images would we have of life in, in the United States or whichever city you care to choose, Paris, whatever, without people standing stop posed, you know, that way. I have nothing against people, if people want to work that way, if people want to work like the great Renika Dijkstra or Axel want to make an agreed portrait of somebody where they stand there, those pictures are wonderful and in the Augustana tradition, no problem with that. But I'm also happy that, you know, candid work exists 
And uh, in the day, like I say, it's an ethical question. You know, how you use the work and what you use it for. And uh, I keep very tight control of my work. It isn't in photo libraries. Nobody can just rent the picture and stick it in an advert or a magazine. It just it's just not available for that. So it's only purely for my artwork and nothing else. And it's a tragedy if anyone is offended. I yet to actually become aware of it, but uh, I appreciate it as a possibility. You're right. Yeah. I have two questions, Matthew. Um, one is: is there, is there a conscious counterpoint to this kind of moment or the time you're going to eat? That's part of the of the the mm -hmm. theme. And the other question is. Do you think these photographs can stand as individual photographs and not in a series? Thinking um, of which series in particular, think, or any of them in particular, the, the shimmer sequences you're talking about? or uh, Yeah, uh, I mean, can, if, if from the point of view of um, you know, gallery sales or whatever, I mean, you said you get that from the one photograph, do you give her all three or do you just give her the one photograph first? Oh, the woman, the one who identified so? herself? She, yeah. she got the one of her just because that's all she wanted, really. Okay, fair. There's a point. I would have happily given her all three if she wanted them. Uh, at a smaller scale, because they're pretty big. You know, something she could fit in her apartment. Uh, decisive moment. Yeah, obviously I'm aware of that. You know, I know a bit about my photographic history, but uh, yeah, I like that challenge, saying there is multiple moments. And uh, a friend of mine was a curator researching a big Cartier-Bresson show, and he said, it's all nonsense, you know. He took, he took 20 pictures of people leaping across puddles before he got the one of the man leaping across the puddle. So, <laughs> I, you know, of course, Cardi Bresson's are great. I'm not critiquing him, but uh, yes, there was a point of recognizing that, that, that you're playing and having a, good, a big smile at that notion of breaking up the decisive moment. Uh, with Shimmer, no, the works are just so locked as groups. The, 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 the actual wall position may float up and down a bit. Sometimes they run around corners. Sometimes they, you know, they move up or down. The sequences change. The sequence doesn't change, you know, one to six, but the positioning might change. But they're only sold as that group. Yes, some, there are some individual pictures in there as well. There's the odd individual picture that exists. There's one of the books I didn't show to you. One of the twelve books just has a single photograph in it. Just one, one picture in a book. Just allowed to breathe. And then that closes, and you go on to the next sequence. So, a bit of both. I, I was wondering, you guys are self taught, and just a, have you ever thought in a way of what, what unlikely influences and some unconventional things that I'm interested in? That form your vision that perhaps have you know, really important to you because you can come to a more conventional photography education. Un unlikely influences? Is that yeah. Did you um, Bobby Charlton or <laughs> Chess or. Well, uh, well, no, I was a punk, but yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I think, I think that the, the punk new wave movement and it's in its broadest sense, this may not. I mean, that empowered one to challenge the prevailing orthodoxy, as punk did. You know, I mean, the punk was a, a, a you know, garage band lo-fi <coughs> movement against the great dinosaurs of rock that existed then. You know, you and, you and your three 17-year-old friends could form a band and make a record in the garage, record it yourself, and press a thousand copies and release it. Definitely informed and empowered 
many people, from fashion to art to photography like myself, where I believed, well, I'm never going to be Cartier-Bresson or Robert Frank, but damn it, I can travel up the back of the A1 in my car and I will try and prep, you know, get a book printed and release a thousand copies myself. And did it. So yeah, there was a, that influence of the empowerment of that time, of that movement, was, was kind of wonderful and very liberating to do it. Um, and same way as you know, there's not you know, many things happening now that are just as liberating. The digital revolution is utterly liberating to photographers, how they can make books and disseminate them and release things on the web. You know, uh, it's, it's incredible what people can do. And same as filmmaking. You know, everyone, everyone has an HD camera in their goddamn phone these days, so it's wonderful. The problem is, how good, how good is the thing you can do with that? You know, um, that's the challenge. But it is, it is a wonderful, liberating time. Everyone can print their pictures, even photography. You can buy a printer for a couple of thousand bucks, get to go to some friends, buy a bigger printer for 4,000 bucks, and you don't ever need to go to the laboratory again. And when I was, you know, years before that, you know, you have to go to a laboratory and spend your life savings to get one print, you know, it was ridiculous. And that's all gone. Those financial gatekeepers, those financial high bars have been eliminated, and that's wonderfully liberating and exciting. No need to buy film anymore, no need to pay developers. Great, great stuff. Right back. Oh, sorry, come on here. Yeah, sorry. Sure, sure, follow on that. Over 30 years, can you comment on the differences in working, say, with an 8x10 camera, as you said you did, compared to working with digital, uh, which you say you're doing now? And Because uh, I can't imagine working with an 8x10 cameras. Horses for courses, you know what I'm saying, in English, you know, and what you're doing, you, you use the appropriate tool, you know, and uh, what seems the appropriate tool. So, yeah, the stuff I wanted an A1, I wanted. Uh, you know, a very calm, methodical way of working. So I used 4x5 and 8x10, large format view cameras. Those are the view cameras with tripods and, you know, black cloths you go under and everything like that. And, uh, and you couldn't use those in the unemployment offices, you know, use a medium format camera. And, uh, digital helped, you know, in the sense of um, when you took the camera, now, now the workflow is digital. Even people who shoot film, often their workflow is digital in the sense that the film is scanned and the first time they see the picture is on their computer screen. So I'd be, after I'd go out and I'd shoot these shimmer sequences, when I'd come back, I'd be going through the results and I'd be flicking through the computer screen, you know, number, frame number 1079, frame number 1080, frame number 1081, and I'd see these stuttering moments of this engagement with this woman eating her chicken and all this couple, you know, and I'd have this flickering sequence passing in front of my eyes. That was very helpful to recognise. Wait, this is very interesting. How it's how it's stutteringly passing me by, and how can I keep that rather than just choosing the fifteenth frame as the most interesting one? You know, rather than doing that, to, to accept and embrace all of them as, as as life flowed around and through me, and somehow encourage people to recognise this moment of photographic awareness, this moment of awareness, and that in a sort of it's not educational but sort of illuminating way is hopefully what the work gives to people a bit, you know, the sense of, I recognize this moment happening. I've seen moments like that come and go in my life, and this moment of awareness, it isn't necessarily a single frame. It's a moment of that, that little fraction, that little mini-movie in our heads that happens about things. 
I'm not in charge of the microphones here, and she's not. There's one in the back, yeah. Um, you said after Shimmer and the President, you're not going to work in that way anymore. You were friends with that Oh, I don't know. I just like to switch about. I see. I had an interview with a German interviewer. Um, this is embarrassing, I'm going to do it because it's relevant now. Please don't take this the wrong way. But uh, the, German, the German interviewer uh, about three years ago, she started with, So, my friend says you are the David Bowie of photography. You are always changing your fashion and your style. What is this about? <laughs> she made me like, fall over laughing. Uh, um, what did I mean? I mean, like, I considered that, that those three bodies of work complete. You know, and finished in that way. And I didn't want to make another body of work that could be construed to be about America, you know, in the most obvious sense. Uh, but, you know, so I've worked in the United Kingdom, I've worked in Western Europe and Japan, um, I've done pieces that have no particular geographical home. Um, I had to skip a lot of this work for sake of brevity today. Um, so I didn't want to sort of make a fourth body of work. And it was kind of neat when I realized halfway through it was happening that there was this light consciousness and time thing going on, this shutter aperture focus thing, that that just made a perfect completeness to it. Um, as to what's next, I don't really know. But that was all. The answer you made of the woman smoking cigarettes in sort of the, the orange castle. Oh, in the, in the exhibition here? Yeah. All right, yeah. Um, is that part of the series... Um, it's a series that we didn't show. Yeah. Didn't show I, had to, I had to skip. Is it a recent series? No, 96, okay. 95, 96, I believe. It's, it's, it's um, a series of portraits of young people out at night. Um, it's, not a, it's not about nightclub life or anything like that. It's about a point of life where you transition from being a child into being an adult. It's a journey that we've all had to make. And some people, you know that point of adolescence, some people make that journey fairly easily and smoothly, and others get sort of becalmed upon the way, and contemporary culture encourages to stretch that out as much, because it's supposed to be fun and young and eternally youthful, and you end up in this eternal adolescence sort of thing, which is not that good, but uh, there's a, a, a body of work about that. I never identified the location of it, to keep it, it was all done in one um, modest city, where I've had people think it's America, where people think it's Germany, and Scandinavia, I just don't want to review. I mean, I, people know where it is and can work it out, but it's, it's unimportant. It has to be a general. Yeah, frames are just to the edge, they're borderless, so there's no mat or pass by two around it at all. I didn't want that just to, so the picture have a dialogue. Obviously, there's still a technically a minimal black white frame, it was in that case, white frame around them, but you know, just so they'd have a dialogue in there. It had to be a small pause between them, because obviously you're flipping from someone's head to their feet or something like that, but there's little. The actual arrangement was just a random aesthetic thing that I arrived at. Play, you can play them on the computer, make a little wall layout. And then you'll rip that up when you get to the installation because it doesn't always work. But, uh, yeah. um, 
shimmer is partially the result of sequencing on a computer, so things are in this. Do you find that that's equally realized when you print them and put them on the wall? Is it equally satisfying for you? I guess that's really for you guys to answer. You know, yeah, I, I was satisfied with them, otherwise I wouldn't have exhibited them. But um, it's for the audience really to decide whether that works. Yeah, it's, a, it's a sequence. And, the, the, you know, and in the books, I mean, that's the great you know, democratic thing of books. It's one of the reasons why I push them so much uh, in photography. It's quite different to an artist having a catalogue, a painter having a catalogue, or a sculptor having a catalogue. It's, it's a wholly different thing. They are kind of artworks in their own right. And, and the democracy of you, you're able to own the entire series from A to Z for a few bucks. You know, and that's a wonderful democratic thing to be able to do, and, and a great thing about photography. And I know that's why I'm, I'm not an obsessive collector like many, but I, I, like many people here, probably I buy a lot of books, and now I will do some number of photography books. All right, our last, last one. Uh, why do you think people comment so much that your images look staged, and as a result, do you see any relation between your working areas and look They do. <laughs> What was the second bit of that? Sorry, the images look staged, and I haven't actually heard that commented that much, but yeah. yeah. Oh, well, you mentioned that, that people sometimes comment that your images appear staged, and I was wondering why that uh, is. Uh, and do you see any relation between your working narrative and low staged? Oh, I see. Uh, well, I think you're unpacking a big issue there for the last question. But, um, uh, the, I guess they look staged because sometimes people can't believe they're true. They couldn't believe that the woman really fell over and all those guys were just reaching at that moment and the shaft of light is falling on the helping hand. But actually, if you start critiquing it in that way, there's no light on the woman. If we complete failure as a light thing, there should be a spotlight on her on the ground in agony and she's actually in shadow. So, you know, we start thinking of it. Um, the question of tableau photography versus photography from life is a huge can of worms that... Uh, we probably haven't got time to go into here, but you know, both are great. Both can be great. You know, some tableau photography really works well. Other, other work to me just speaks of a yearning to be as good as a guy Winogrand. You know, the best of guy Winogrand. So, uh, there's one we have both. You know, I love Cindy Sherman. I love the best of Jeff Wall. I love. You know, I have no problem with that at all. It's not. A, it's not an either-or situation. But equally, I don't want—I want, don't want people to denigrate photography that comes from life, because to me, it is, you know, the greatest works of photography, from Frank through Evans through Diane Arbus, have come from photography going out and engaging with the world as it is, and that dance between the artist and life is so powerful and profound and so immediate in photography, so viscerally direct, that that is what is the, the incredible power of the medium for me. And I personally don't want to ever escape from that. Thank you for listening to this Art Guy of Ontario podcast. For additional recordings, as well as information on upcoming programming and events, please visit us online at agio.net slash talks.